watches in the fourth dimension. So if we were about to interfere in something that is best left alone. I like walking through the dark. It's mysterious. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Watchers in the Fourth Dimension, where four intrepid viewers attempt to watch all of Doctor Who in order. As I imagine you all want to know who we are, we will go ahead and introduce ourselves. My name is Riley Shrek, and I can put fire in the sticks. I am the leader. I am the fire maker. I also have been watching Doctor Who for a very long time. I have experience watching classic Who. Uh, I've made it up to the Fourth Doctor's Pyramids of Mars episodes, and I have watched all of New Who. My name is Don Smith. I've watched all of New Who. Um, I got into some of the classic stuff, mainly through the works of Douglas Adams. And I'm just happy to be here. I'm Julie Filipek. I started New Who. One of my roommates in college was watching it, and I just walked in. I think it was the Satan Pit. And I was just like, oh, what is this? She told me it was Doctor Who, so I started with nine, um, and I've never listened to any of Classic Who, so this is going to be a whole new experience for me. Finally, I'm Anthony Williams. I have been a Doctor Who fan for 26 of my 31 years of life. As far as I know, I'm the only person on the podcast who has seen all of Classic Who before. I also have a very keen interest in archive TV and look forward to walking through all of classic Doctor Who and onto modern Who with this group. Before we move on to the very first story, one thing we did want to cover are the origins of Doctor Who. One thing we, we figured was important to think about before even looking into how Doctor Who got started was the British TV sci-fi landscape prior to Doctor Who. The BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, was originally founded in 1922 and started broadcasting regular TV in 1936. Within two years of its inception, actually has the distinction of broadcasting the first ever piece of sci-fi on TV, which was a 20-minute adaptation of a play called R.U.R. by Carol Sapek. From there, it, most famously, uh, the three Quatermass serials were broadcast on the BBC, as well as A for Andromeda and its sequel. Has anyone seen any of those? I have seen Quatermass in the Pit, the film, which I really, really enjoyed. That film had an influence on sci-fi and horror going on all the way up to the, at least the 80s with the movie Life Force, which also reflects a lot upon the equator mass. I think what's interesting there is certainly when we come around to 1970s Doctor Who, um, the equator mass influence will become incredibly obvious. With this somewhat pedigree of early TV sci-fi, the BBC in 1962 was struggling to fill a slot. Anyone who's seen the docudrama An Adventure in Space and Time will be familiar with the dramatisation of that, where Sidney Newman basically said something for the kiddies between the sports and jukebox jury. He had recently come to the BBC from the Associated British Corporation, ABC, which was one of the regional independent television franchises. He had previously produced a couple of sci-fi shows on that channel, and he was also responsible for a spy drama called The Avengers, which is not related to the Marvel production that we're all so familiar with and enjoy so much now, but will actually have a great influence on Doctor Who as we go through this. 
Newman had just arrived at the BBC. He had this gap to fill. He decided he wanted to do a science fiction show. There had previously been a survey group who uh, looked at opportunities for sci-fi. They had decided that they did not want to go with adaptations of literary sci-fi. They wanted to do something for TV. The two members of that survey group, Donald Wilson, who was a uh, senior exec at the BBC, and C.E. Bunny Weber came up with a concept that they called the Troubleshooters that was going to be three characters, handsome young man, a well-dressed heroine, and a mature man who had a character twist. And what I find hilarious about this is they defined mature as between the ages of 35 and 40. <laughs> Wait, wasn't the so, life uh, expectancy like so short back well, then? Well, <laughs> you know, this was a show for the kids, right? <laughs> And they, they were going to basically tackle extraterrestrial threats on Earth kind of in the same way that Quatermass did. They suggested some gimmicks to go with it, a time machine or a flying saucer, telepathy. And the one I think is most hilarious is they just said a computer, which really makes us think about the modern age. And, and now that's a part of everyday life. But back in 1962, that was considered to be a gimmick. One thing I really love here is, is Newman had just one word to the troubleshooters concept. No. He really just thought it was unimaginative. But he did like the notion of the mature man with a character twist, and I, I think we all know where that's going. Weber and the crew came back with a new working document, and it was at this point that they identified that the mature man would be called Doctor Who. So we can really see the direction here and see how this is moving towards the show that we love. He had really hashed out those initial character traits, that he's on the run from something, he has a time machine... And they had some rather interesting ideas, one of which was to have him as someone who wanted to find his perfect time period and then prevent the future from happening so everything would stay as it was, which is um, interesting. That is a rather good concept, I think. I mean, that could work. I mean, the problem is, is that you have a static plot line from week to week, but for maybe like a movie idea, that could work. Exactly. Newman just said, I don't like this very much. It silly and condescending and it doesn't get across the basis of teaching of educational experience drama based upon and stemming from factual material and scientific phenomena and actual social history of past and future doctor who he'd take science applied and theoretical as being natural as eating so those were the words of Sidney Newman. So he once again made them go away, rewrite it. They came back with something that was very similar to what we actually got. The original storyline they proposed was called The Giants. First episode was going to be called Nothing at the End of the Lane, which I think is fantastic and it's a shame it never got used. Ultimately, The Giants storyline would be tabled and would eventually kick off season two and the story we've actually watched would take its place. Newman would choose Verity Lambert as the producer of the show and it would be Verity who would cast the main characters, pick Waris Hussein as the first director, and she would work with Mervyn Pinfield as associate producer and David Whitaker as script editor. So we're already seeing the, the key elements behind the scenes come together here. Those who would really form this early show and drive its direction. We know how it happened. Does anyone want to talk to any historical context that might be of interest? Well, I was kind of curious is that when you mention how Newman was focused on having an educational element, was that something as part of like the charter for the BBC? From what I know, even to this day, there's a mandate that the BBC has to provide a certain amount of cultural programming and educational programming. I don't know if the intent was that this would go towards that quota or not. 
but I think he really wanted to push the idea that if we're going anywhere in time and space, let's take the opportunity to teach history and to teach science and to do it in a fun way that will really stick in the minds of the kids that they're aiming this at. Well, I think in a cultural context, particularly the time period, I mean, what was going on politically, I don't want to get into the plot of this episode too much, but you can see a lot of focus on a sense of Cold War thinking coming into it and being a major part of that episode. I agree. And, you know, we'll undoubtedly talk about things like the Cold War and, and the impacts that had on the storylines we see in these early seasons of Doctor Who. We'll talk about the the radical social change that was going on in the 60s, an element of the political atmosphere as well, and how those all really filter into the show. One thing to keep in mind is this was the time of the Beatles. Which you can easily tell by Susan's haircut. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I think one of the main things is we kind of tend to forget that the Beatles, that kind of music was a little bit frowned upon at the time, if I recall correctly, or it was just, you know, it's that new music, basically. It's one of those where she's embraced it as a younger individual. When they just walk in and she's dancing to that music, it's just kind of like, oh, okay. Exactly. Before we go ahead and get started on discussing this story, a quick note on nomenclature for anyone who's listening who may be unfamiliar with the format of classic Doctor Who. For those of you who are familiar with modern post-2005 Doctor Who, you'll be used to self-contained episodes or two-parters at the most. With Classic Who, each story is made up of multiple episodes varying in number anywhere from one episode to, in the most extreme example, 12. When on this podcast we refer to story or serial, we're talking about the overall storyline. An episode is one of those 25-minute-ish installments that makes up each story. As a further note, British TV has a habit of using season and series as interchangeable words, and will endeavour to follow the BBC's naming convention with Doctor Who, using season to denote a season of classic Doctor Who, and series to denote a full season of new Doctor Who. That's post-2005. When talking about Doctor Who in its entirety, we'll refer to it as the show, to avoid any further confusion. And as a final note, when we talk about classic Doctor Who, We're talking about the show as broadcast from 1963 to 1989, along with the 1996 TV movie, while New Who, or New Doctor Who, refers to the continuation of the show that started broadcasting in 2005 and is still going strong today. We'll continue on with the discussion. I think this is an opportune time for us to move into something we want to do every week. Each time, one of us will give a very brief plot summary in, ideally, a humorous way. Don? You have two very nosy school teachers who stalk one of their students and then trespass on her family's junkyard. They eventually assault her grandfather and they break and enter into the home before the grandfather traps them in a police box. And then they go back in time and mess around with some cavemen for three episodes. With that, let's talk about the story and the episodes and the elements of Doctor Who that we see here. One of the things I'm very curious to hear about is, Julie, this was your first experience of classic Doctor Who. Tell me, the theme tune, the opening credits, what what are your thoughts and feelings there? It was a little bit of a shock. To be fair, I have seen when they came out with the 50th anniversary, it did start with that opening. So I've 
I've actually seen it before, so it wasn't as drastic of a change, but not having as complex of a musical theme was very interesting. Very beginning, it has the opening, and then it's like showing the police officer going through the junkyard, and it's still playing the theme music, which is obviously much different than they normally do in, in New Who, uh, where they show a lot more of the credits. So that was kind of just the initial, very off the bat. Oh, it was it was a little different. But at least, you know, the core theme is there. I really liked how cinematic that shot was and how they kind of bring everything in and slowly reveal the TARDIS. But at that time, it's it's not really the TARDIS. The audience has, has no idea what this thing is, but it, it's sort of played as this really epic moment, but you don't really know why. So one of the things I've done around this is I've done a fair amount of secondary reading in preparation for this. One of the critics, well, two technically, it's that there's a book written by Rob Shearman, who eventually wrote Dalek for the Christopher Eccleston season. Toby Hadok, who's a stand-up comedian, they, they did a uh, their own marathon and chronicled it in a series of books called Running Through Corridors. They talk about how the policeman walks around outside the junkyard but doesn't actually go in, and the doors or the gates open for the audience not for the policemen, and they open on their own, almost as a very early breaking of the fourth wall, letting us into this world, which I, I like that as an observation. I absolutely love that opening. Absolutely. It's fascinating. It puts the audience in the center seat. It tells them, like, you know, we're going on this journey, and the camera work there. It's just very bold for something back then to see something that just carries through like that. Yeah, and Im- imagine being the actor who played the the policeman you are the first person on this show that has now been running for 55 years at the time of recording this podcast that's quite a claim to frame <laughs> you know one of the things that struck me about that opening shot is that and it's something i've i will continue to say in regards to the first doctor episodes is that and this is something that we only get now i think because it wouldn't have that feel for an audience back then as if they were watching it but now when you watch these episodes the low resolution the black and white and especially that opening shot it has like a floating kind of dreamlike feel and it makes it so much more imaginative to me than on some of the later episodes i i agree with that Moving beyond the opening shot, thoughts on this very first episode before we move on to the three with the cavemen? I I want to hear more thoughts on this. I kept focusing on the camera work, especially in the very first episode. It's very, very aggressive. There are a lot of close-ups. And oftentimes, I believe it was a scene in one of the classrooms where Barbara and Ian are speaking, and the camera, like, they, I think they're standing up to leave the room, and the camera just, like, crashes in on them. I mean, just really comes in. And I thought it was, like, very aggressive and interesting to see that because usually in this time period for television, at least in American television, you notice that the camera is very still. It's very static. And now there's still elements of this episode and the other three episodes where you can tell the blocking is done like very much like stage play. It's very simple. It's not very complicated. It doesn't really bring in something. It's obviously done from a stage direction kind of point of view. But the camera work itself is just how the camera moves, especially in the opening shot. It definitely seems very new and interesting for that time period. It's very lively. You had a lot of instances of the camera moving around to reframe the actors in the shot and moving in. In spots today where we would have a cut or something, it just stuck with them and moved on. 
Exactly. Well, in regards to the first episode, I mean, I think it does a very good job. They always say for television shows, the pilot episode is always difficult. It has so much it has to do. It has to carry so much. It has to introduce the audience to the characters. It has to introduce the audience to the premise all the while still being able to entertain. And usually if you watch a television show, the pilot episode is almost just like a preamble to actually being entertained because it has so much it has to introduce you to. But this episode, I feel like, does a really good job because, one, it it develops a sense of mystery straight off the bat, which is a really smart, clever way of dealing with giving out exposition by treating it like a mystery. You know, why it's the unearthly child? What is the deal with this kid? It makes you want to know more when Ashley is just feeding you exposition. Julie, I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts. I agree a little bit with the stalking that was mentioned in our quick little rundown. Also, at the same time, I enjoyed seeing teachers who were aware of issues that may be happening with their students as opposed to just letting things pass by. Maybe it wasn't handled properly, but I'll take teachers that are paying attention more than anything else. They noticed things that not all teachers would have noticed. And so I actually found that interesting from a character perspective, that that's how they decided to introduce them and how they became interested in what Susan was doing. One one thing I really appreciated in this, and to your point, Julia, about Ian and Barbara, the very first actual spoken line, the slightly camp, oh yes, guy, <laughs> but the first proper spoken line came from Barbara. And, you know, you, you watch particularly the last Christmas special that we saw, Capaldi's Exit, and the first Doctor is portrayed as a, an incredibly sexist character. I think what speaks volumes about the show is the first line is Barbara's. She is the first proper speaking part in the show. And it's Barbara's curiosity that kickstarts all of this. She's the one that initially goes to Totter's Lane and finds nothing there bringing us back to that nothing at the end of the lane concept. Which is good for now. I have some other thoughts about Barbara for maybe some of the caveman episodes, but we'll get there when we get there. But you're right, she, she was the one who took the first initiative. And the, the interesting thing is when they do make it into the junkyard, it's Barbara who notices the police box and not Ian. So it really seems to me that Barbara's the one driving the narrative here. I can see that. One thing that uh, about the first episode that I thought was really interesting that stuck out to me is I really, I don't know, maybe it's because of seeing so many episodes of Who, is when Barbara is explaining to Susan when everything is unfolding in front of her, and then she's trying, and they're inside the TARDIS, I believe, at this point, and Barbara says, can't you see this is all a game that you play with your grandfather, as if it's something like uh, that her grandfather has created this, like, magical world that really is false. It's just something about that, I mean, as being a person who's seen so many Who episodes, something very funny about that concept. It was pretty funny anyway, because they're in this gigantic room in a tiny box and saying, oh, it's just a game for you and your grandfather. It's like, are you are you paying attention? Do you see what's going on? <laughs> Speaking of funny games, did anyone else notice the music that Susan was listening to? I didn't recognize it. It sounded, I mean, it didn't have any vocals. It sounded like something like, uh, if I'm getting the time period right, like the Seekers or something like one of those like guitar solo kind of bands. According to what Ian said, it was by John Smith and the Common Men. <laughs> Couldn't get a more generic name for a band than that. For anyone who um, is interested in media beyond the visual 
presentation of Doctor Who, the Big Finish who do audio dramas actually uh, wove a storyline around John Smith and the common men and how they were in an alternate timeline displaced the Beatles. Isn't John Smith the name the Doctor has used on a on a few occasions as an alias? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, but why hasn't he ever used the alias Dr. Foreman? Dr. Who? I noticed that the first Doctor, he has a mannerism that he does where he goes, hmm? Like that, he does that often. And I can't help but while looking at his face and then thinking about where Star Wars was filmed and mostly shot on studio, and I think about Frank Oz, and I think when he characterized the character of Yoda, I can't help but think he stole that from the first Doctor. And there may be a wild connection to make, but I feel like I see it. I'd never thought about that before, but I like that. I wonder if there's any interviews or anything like that out there. Well, maybe, like, but it just, it seems, yeah, it just, maybe it's just like the, the age that you know, the first Doctor has, but like that kind of, like that mannerism really strikes me. Speaking of the Doctor, Julie, I'm going to throw this back to you. This was obviously <laughs> your first experience of the real first Doctor. I, I'm dying to know and and to get some of your thoughts on this, on, you know, what did you think of him? It's going to take me a second to really get used to him. One of the things I find interesting is, so when I think of kind of my first Doctor, I really watched Christopher Eggleston first. He looked at everything with bright eyes to a certain degree. Everyone lives, that kind of stuff. So he was much more optimistic in certain ways. And then this Doctor seemed kind of condescending a lot of the times. And just like, guys, you should actually know this. Like, stop stop being stupid is really kind of what I got out of it. I don't know if it was just a, he hasn't been on earth for terribly long and I know that he's running. I don't know. It kind of struck me as a little off. This doctor would also try to bash your head in with a rock. (laughs) Yes. I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to make sure that was brought up. That was quite interesting. And also it brings back now from that was, I think, the third episode. You look in the first episode and then Susan's pleading to him in regards to Ian and Barbara. It kind of makes you wonder, like, is he about to, like, lift them up into the TARDIS and then, like, open the doors and push them out into the ocean or something? Susan was just like, it's her grandfather. So she, she like, oh, don't do anything with my grandfather. And then all of a sudden when he's like, oh, well, I'm just going to take them. She's like, oh, no, absolutely not. And I'm like, OK, this is this just got real. I'm I'm just looking at back at my watching notes that I put together and through this first episode he's very obstructive he's very defensive he is very patronizing at times and there's definitely an arrogance about him but re-watching it I still find him very very charming with all of that and I think that's a, a testament to Billy Hartnell in that he's able to do that but equally with a twinkle in his eye and some charm there well absolutely I mean I believe wasn't he uh his famous role before Doctor Who playing a uh, curmudgeon like drill sergeant on a certain television program yeah I believe so and he was he was very worried because he was becoming stereotyped as that kind of senior non-commissioned officer drill sergeanty type role and that was one of the reasons he leapt all over this was because this was a change i absolutely adore the first doctor I, and i think it has a lot to do with what you were saying in which he can be just like a just a curmudgeon and just like just cranky and horrible to be around but there's there's a little bit of like a charm or like a spring in his step that makes him so intriguing julie i was just going to say one of the things i'm very interested to see is what you think of him as this goes on and as we continue watching and you see more and more of him and see how he changes 
and opens up and starts to become more of the character that that we know now. A lot of the, you know, kind of condescension and arrogance and things seemed much more apparent in the first episode than as it went on. So I think part of it is just he's probably not comfortable with having two people just stumble upon him out of the blue. I'm kind of interested to see how that changes once he gets used to having them around. I think to Don's point, while he said it humorously, I mean, they have effectively broken into his home. I don't know, I would be pretty cranky if someone broke into my home and then tried to tell me that the whole thing was a lie. Um, I might not necessarily kidnap them and whisk them off to the Stone Age, but I, I probably wouldn't be too happy about it. One thing that struck me was right off the bat, Barbara and Ian affected by the travel on the TARDIS. And I don't know if that was something that they just happened to do for that episode and they didn't know in the future that they didn't want human beings to be affected or if we could retcon an explanation. And I don't want to be one of those people that's like nitpicky or something like that, but I just find it interesting that that one time, and I don't think they do it again, but just on that first time, they seem disoriented, especially when they leave the TARDIS. Even the doctor looked kind of ill. It sort of affected everyone on there. And I noticed that too. It was a very interesting, just when you compare it to everything that comes later. Right. And I think right. some of the retconning, it seemed that he even mentioned that there was like something going on with the TARDIS. Like that seemed a little, you know, strange. So maybe it was just a, a matter of maybe the TARDIS was just acting up. And I mean, I also think, you know, there's that scene where Susan tries to stop him. So I'm wondering if something got knocked that maybe shouldn't have that causes the TARDIS takeoff to be a little more violent than it would normally be and causes effectively everyone to pass out. And here's an interesting question. Was that the first time that the TARDIS had two human beings flying in it? Maybe there's something about the TARDIS wasn't familiar with the anatomy and the physiology of a human being and so therefore the travel affected human beings a little bit more. Before we properly move on to the remaining three episodes... A, I, I wanted to say that final shot with the TARDIS in the desert and the shadow approaching it, that is a gorgeous shot and really loops into what Don and Riley, you guys were saying earlier about the standard of direction in this first episode. I'm always astounded. My breath is taken away by that shot at the very end. It's extraordinarily cinematic. It's it's just beautifully done. What I kind of found nice was that it the TARDIS landed in a spot that wasn't a flat piece of land. So it was actually like tilted, which you never see hardly at all in New Who. So it's like, oh, well, the TARDIS doesn't always like land in a particularly great spot. Every time you see like, you know, New Who, it's like, oh, it's in some back alley. It might be somewhere really inconvenient. Like in the middle of the desert in 100,000 B.C. The other question, and it's one that I want to come back to at the end of, of the discussion, is whether this is one story or two. But I think we need to talk about the remainder and then and then come back to that. The remaining three episodes, running round with some cavemen. I'd like to point out that in regards to the cavemen, particularly in the Cave of Skulls, the first time we meet them, we have this long discussion between the two possible rival leaders Maybe it's because we just went through an election season, but it felt like I was watching a modern political debate taking place <laughs> in which I'm the fire maker. No, he cannot make fire. I can make fire. That's 100% what it was. <laughs> but also, I, I get it at the same time, if you kind of 
take it into context where it's if you're thinking about who should lead at that point in time, should it be the someone who is going to feed everyone or are you going to try to find the person who, in theory, could maybe find fire? Like, it's it's one of those, like, I, I get where they're coming from. And I, th- I think one thing that, that shows the importance of fire, I mean, they, they keep talking about Orb as their deity. And, and my reading is that Orb is the sun. So obviously fire and heat is a, a I mean, I realize this is a very basic and early culture but obviously heat and fire are a very very important element to them from a religious perspective as well so he who is able to make fire is up there with orb there was a little bit of confusion with that because when Zah was talking to the old woman about how to make fire one she doesn't seem to like fire at all and she said that they killed his father the fire maker because he made fire I was a little confused by some of the dialogue going on there, but I was also distracted because his girlfriend looked like Neil from The Young Ones. <laughs> and in all of my notes, that is how her name is written as Neil. Oh, my I was trying to figure out why the old woman was said specifically that they would all die in fire. Obviously, I think there's a, you know the Cold War threat of nuclear annihilation that was going on in the culture in 1953, but in the context of the story itself, why she would have this belief of something that keeps her warm and you know provides her nourishment, I didn't see why she was felt that way. Maybe she had like uh, premonitions or something. But I was expecting a payoff to that line too. Maybe, you know, once they get fire, it breaks out just something, but it just kind of came out of nowhere and then it was gone. You know, one thing that seemed very interesting to me, and this wasn't a reading I'd really had. To me, this is very much a, a story of power struggles. And you have the obvious one of Cal versus Czar, but equally you've got Ian versus the Doctor, and then also old versus young. So you've got Cal and Zar who represent the younger people wanting fire. And then you've got the old mother who frequently says, there shall be no fire. And then the father of, of her, the female cave, uh, the, the cave woman, I should say, he frequently says, I don't like what's happening or words to that effect. To me, there's almost an ideological element there where... This was made, obviously, in the early 60s when there was a lot of social change and things were really changing very, very quickly in the world. And, you know, older people can kind of be adverse to change. And I think that's what we see here. Earlier, someone had made the comment about, you know, what was meant by why would you want to make fire if your father was killed because of making it? But it could come down to that ideological where someone had decided that yes while you've made fire and in some degrees that has been good it has been it may have had a negative impact on the tribe in some other way that they then killed him for it because they wanted to go back to what the tribe had been before julie i really think that i know riley touched on on the cold war and and fire being an analogy for for nuclear weapons and nuclear power and to your point and to riley's point You know, there's this element here that whoever has fire has the power and the upper hand, much in the same way that in the Cold War you had the arms race and the race to become nuclear powers. And I I think this is very much a reflection of that. I wanted to add two things. Uh, One, 
it's very interesting when the doctor mentions that we should teach everyone. It shouldn't just be one person that knows how to make fire. It should be everyone. And so that's an interesting uh, to see what we may believe the writer is trying to say about that time period. And secondly, in regards to what you're saying about the uh, adversarial relationship of old versus young, it's very clear and it's hit on a lot when the doctor is constantly needling and antagonizing Ian by calling him young man. He doesn't call him his name for most of the episode, just keeps calling him young yeah, man. Yeah, and I find it interesting too, if we look at Ian for a second, because I made, I made some notes where at the very beginning when they're they're still in the TARDIS and haven't left it yet, and Ian keeps saying like, you know, where's the proof? And the doctor is basically saying, we don't need it. It's like, I actually can side with Ian on that one, where if I was put in a situation where I've just been in this room and it in theory has done something, but I haven't actually seen where it's at, I'd be like, where's the proof as well? The doctor being like, you don't need anything. You just have to believe it was just kind of a, an interesting take on that. Will that be the last time in the series we actually see the doctor check to see if it's safe to go outside? Well, I don't want to spoil anything for later episodes. Because you don't see that very often. <laughs> Not on New Who. Not on New Who. Go- going back to the point Julie just made about Ian needing proof. I mean, he's established as a science teacher. So he is he's all about the empirical evidence and having things being proven. And I think that's really a key part of his character. He needs He needs the evidence. So just being told we're in a different time or we're on a strange planet. He's not going to believe that until he can get out there and to, you know, the doctor made that great little speech about hearing the alien birds. Until Ian can do that, he's he's going to be sceptical. And when he does, he's kind of gobsmacked by it. Yeah. I mean, he, he leans on Susan because the whole thing, it's just really shaking his entire worldview to the core. Exactly. Once they step outside that first time, Ian and Barbara, you know, they are blown away. But then as the as the doctor goes off, I think he was just looking at samples. I think he wanted to get an exact date on where they were, and that's why he was looking at samples. When he's separated from the rest of them, and I thought this was interesting and it kind of made me chuckle, once the doctor gets pulled away um, by the cave people, and then, of course, you know, he's lost from the group, Susan just, you know, is hysterical immediately. And Ian and Barbara... Despite being human beings who have now traveled through time, they seem more composed than Susan. And Susan's grandfather has only been missing for two minutes. She's hysterical for the majority of this. Yeah, I mean, like the uh, in the first episode where how she acts when they had that POV shot of both Ian and Barbara talking to her, like, why did you answer the question like this? And it's all, she seems all stressed out. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing this is a very, uh, doesn't paint a positive picture of teenagers as people that can, you know, be calm. I could go on and on about my thoughts on, on Susan, but I'm trying not to go down that route. <laughs> uh, Julie, 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 we're going to have so much fun over the next <laughs> 10 stories. Incidentally, one thing about the Doctor, I, he was lighting his pipe at the time that he was kidnapped. So this was the first hint that the Doctor is a smoker. And it's also the very last time he attempts to smoke. I'm assuming that the entire ordeal puts him off smoking. Obviously, that becomes a main plot point because that's you know how Cal sees him making fire and, and makes the comment about how fire comes from his fingers. So that really pushes the plot forward and 
explains why they're so determined to keep hold of them. I'd like to point out that um, one thing that also struck me is that in the Forest of Fear, not to skip ahead too much, but once we get to our escape, I like the fact that they did not show the creature, the beast, which I'm assuming is some sort of saber-toothed tiger or something like that, and that's fine. But what really cracked me up is that, did anyone notice the face of the dead boar that was like right on like the right in the front of this of the scene i can't say this i did okay well anyway just it was interesting because the the poor's face they whoever designed it on the set his eyes are pointing upwards i know i couldn't help but think of like that classic flintstones joke of all the animals on the flintstones that you know operate machinery or basically the power system for everything in which they make that joke like it's a living and they're like rolling their eyes that's what the board <laughs> looked like in that shot <laughs> oh i like that talking about the beasts one thing i think is really to this story's advantage is that it's in black and white i'm a big believer that black and white hides all manner of sins we have no idea if the blood from the beast was even red but it looks good and in the same way the jungle which is a studio set but i think it looks great that helps with special effects in so many ways because again like the blood it can just be whatever color it doesn't matter so I can imagine in 1963, if you don't have to show the red color, you could probably get away with a lot more blood. And I believe this is the episode where, um, the specific episode where Don referenced earlier of the doctor about to smash someone's head in with a rock. Yes, it's a very different doctor than what we're used to. He's, he's not really done cooking yet. I was going to say, this is this is an early version. He's scared. He's on the run. He's had his life disrupted. He's, he's not exactly rational at this point. I, I don't know. I, li- I like the hard edge a little bit, you know, it, it, especially in these first episodes, because it lets the audience, like, you know, we're not too sure about this guy. You know, I mean, he's capable of this you know, or, or thinks about it and... I know, I like that. But you also get that whole aspect of where you've got Barbara and Susan wanting to go back and help Zah when he's injured by helping the Beast. And Zah, and I'm going to call her Neil because to me that's her name, are shocked because they, they, they don't kill. And you've got them learning that kind of kindness from them, but you've kind of got the Doctor learning the same lesson. Yeah. Also, doesn't the Doctor make some sort of comment about how the cave people just keep changing their mind and and flipping back and forth and that's why they're in danger because at one moment like yeah we'll be all you know they'll treat us okay because we'll give them fire then in the next moment they'll be like oh well do you know what i have the secret of fire let's kill them now and i think that also goes back to the you know cold war you know political sides and duplicity going back and forth you know modern real politique yeah and and riley to that point i really thought that Zar's eventual determination to keep the TARDIS crew around, even after they've given him fire, to me really was a reflection of the brain drain that was going on from east to west at the time. They didn't want to lose what were effectively their top people, just in case they lose the secret again. They want the people who know how to do it still there. But going back to The Rock, I I found it very interesting that while the Doctor was clearly about to cave in the skull of Zar, when they eventually make it back to the tribe in episode four, the fire maker. And Cal is making the claim that it was 
Tsar who killed Old Mother, the Doctor tricks Cal into revealing himself. And it's the Doctor who turns the tribe against him. Right there, we have a classic characteristic of the Doctor that shows up, continually using wits to defeat an opponent. I also thought that in this episode, and this is just the nature of what you have to deal with in early 60s television, but the fight scene with the film being, the speed being, you know, sped up for the fight scene, you know, always is a rough thing that to see because it, for our eyes, it looks rather ridiculous. But, you know, for the time period, you know, that was a way of being able to get away with not having like really, you know, high end stunt people doing massive danger, any of these dangerous fight scenes. And what was interesting is that despite the fight scene being sped up and looking, you know, ridiculous in our own modern eyes, the ending of that scene, the the, the death stroke, so to speak, was pretty brutal for the time period, I thought. After that, I was surprised at how quickly the remainder of the episode progressed. I honestly remembered it being a lot slower, but their escape happened very, very quickly. Yeah, they didn't really have have much time to convince them that they were dead with Susan and her and her flaming skull. She did one useful thing. It's because she went to the future and listened to Slayer and she was inspired to put her skull on the torch. Because that wasn't even a plan. She was just doing that for fun. Look, it's like it's alive. <sighs> Susan secretly has a crush on Kerry King. <laughs> yeah, that, that was actually one of my, my comments. Susan does a helpful thing. Surprise! <laughs> it was nice to have everyone kind of contribute something. One of the themes I noticed in this episode, besides the politics and the old versus young, was working together. You get that great line of the doctors saying, fear makes companions of us all, Miss Wright. And then ultimately you've got Za saying that Cal is not stronger than the whole tribe. Even though he's kind of a jerk and wants to keep them imprisoned, he really enjoys learning from them. And not that we'll ever know, but I think he'll be a better leader because of it. And he learns to sort of let everybody work together. Does anyone else have any thoughts before we move on? I would say that the end of this episode leads into the next serial, the next set of episodes, and a little teaser, and that's something that I always enjoy when Doctor Who does. And I, this was the first time I did it. And I think one thing to note on that is at the time of recording, we are right in the middle of series 11 of the new Doctor Who, Jodie Whittaker's first season, and of course, the woman who fell to Earth did exactly the same thing. Before we go ahead and rate this, I'm curious, does anyone want to know what the uh, director, Waris Hussein, and, and what the producer, Verity Lambert, said about this story? You mentioned earlier in the podcast that you wanted to know our viewpoint of whether this is one story or two stories. We have a first episode that serves as our pilot or exposition for the entire series, and then really it is a three-part story at the end. I would think that from the viewpoint of Verity Lambert and where is Hussein? Hussein would be happy that he had the opportunity to make such interesting shots that he did that were very unique and using a lot of depth. And Verity Lambert would be happy with maybe the first episode, but I don't know if they would be that up on the writing for the actual cave people segment. Before we talk about what they said, I want to come back to that question. So, uh, Julie, one story or two? To say that the first part is a story in and of itself, I don't really know, mainly from that perspective of nothing really resolves itself. 
they get kidnapped. It's hard to really separate that. I think there were things that they learned, especially like Ian and Barbara, in the subsequent three three episodes that still connect to that first story. So if there was a little bit more to the first, then I would say it could be too, but I just don't know that there's enough in the first to, for it to be separate. Don? I think that fire is good. <laughs> to me, I view it really as being two stories. While you do have the teaser at the end of the first episode, I think it really could have connected to almost anywhere else. There's not a whole lot of connective narrative tissue between it and the first episode really just sets up the entire series, but it doesn't necessarily set up 100,000 years BC very well. My thoughts on this are, A, while Anthony Coburn is the one credited with writing An Unearthly Child, the first episode, from what I've heard, it's very, very close to Bunny Webber's original Nothing at the End of the Lane script. In terms of a writing perspective, yes, it's, it's a little separate, I think thematically, in terms of an ongoing narrative, it's it sets up the subsequent three parts with the storyline of the four travellers getting to know each other and start to trust each other and have to rely on each other. And it really gets us to that point. So I think yes and no as to whether it's a holistic story or not. Well, thank goodness we have that definitive answer. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, so with that, this is what Verity Lambert said about it. Her exact words, and this was uh, quoted in the first Doctor Handbook that came out in the 90s, quoting, I think, an interview from the 1980s, where she said, I did not care much for the caveman story as a whole, but the ending of episode one is an absolutely magical sequence. There was no dialogue during those last few minutes, it was all done visually, and I think, with great invention, taking the four central figures on a ride through time to that desert, then ending with the shadow taking over the landscape. It summed up just how new Doctor Who was a concept. Warris Hussein said, I was not at all enthusiastic about doing that story. I was concerned about having to direct cavemen with the whole idea of them A. speaking English and B. stopping short of grunting. There wasn't a lot of love from the key players behind the scenes for this story. Watching it now, this is my second time seeing it, and I felt the same way the first time, which is the first episode of this four-parter is the stronger one. It's interesting. It moves quickly. We get kind of bogged down by caveman politics. And I don't know whether to vote Call or Zah. <laughs> so with that, should we go ahead and rate the story? Yes, please. Dear listeners, one thing we're going to do every week is we are going to slightly change our rating system. We're going to rate it out of 10, but each week the object out of 10 will be something from the story. This week, we're going to rate it out of cavemen. Don, how many cavemen out of 10 would you give this one? Well, I would give An Unearthly Child the first section. I'm going to use my own rating system. 10 counts of breaking and entering out of 10. <laughs> and I would give 100,000 years B.C. probably six flaming caveman skulls. Julie. <laughs> I'm not going to make it as difficult. Um, I'd probably rank it uh, seven cavemen. Um, and really, I think the predominant reason is as I was watching it, it had its issues. But if I were 
a kid just getting into Doctor Who. After watching this four episode, I'd watch more. Excellent. I would have. Riley? Like I said, I like to think of it as two separate stories. So I would say that for an unearthly child, the first part, I'd give that nine overdramatic, misunderstood teenagers out of ten. And then for the other three, I'd give them six cavemen out of ten. And I would give the whole story seven cavemen out of ten. Going back to my earlier point, I think narratively it's got to be considered as one story, so I'm reluctant to break it out in the way that Don and Riley have. Overall, I enjoyed it more than I remember enjoying it. We have been the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. Thank you for joining us as we start this adventure. Join us next time round as we talk about the Daleks. <laughs> <laughs>